0: Good morning. I think most of you know me, but my name is Dave Stroes, or Strozeski is the long version, if you don't know me. And uh, it's my privilege to be here this morning and share the, uh, the good news with you and open the book. I'm one of the elders here at Grace while uh, Mike is uh, out, or I did actually see him, but uh, anyway, love the opportunity to share God's word with you this morning. We're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to examine there the promise of pain, the promise in pain that God gives us. In fact, I'm going to give you my entire message right now. If you go to Second Corinthians 1 and verse 9, that verse says that we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That's the message. That the promise in pain is that God works in us, that we would not trust ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. This even has its roots in Genesis. Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, the first repercussion of the curse, after they willfully turned their back and decided to go a different route and disobey God, after cursing the serpent, the first repercussion was, Woman, you will now in pain bear children. Man, you will now in pain cultivate the earth. Genesis 2, it carries with us to today. Even Adam and Eve though, they had received the sentence of death in themselves and yet they were learning not to trust in themselves but in God who would raise the promised Messiah from the dead. If you can, please stand and read with me. First Corinthians one verses. First Corinthians, second Corinthians one, sorry, verses one through ten. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded. Knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us. He on whom We have set our hope. Let's pray together. Father God, we welcome the the truth of your word into our lives and pray that by faith, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, that you would apply truths to our heart that we need to hear today. Lord, we're grateful that it's the work of the Holy Spirit who works in us, both to will and to do your good pleasure. And we know through the agent of your word that you move in us, you work in us, to become transformed to the likeness of Christ. And it's with that great hope that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You read those verses and there's a lot of affliction going on and there's a lot of comfort going on. In my personal study, I've avoided the Corinthian books for years. Just because the Corinthians always seem like such a narcissistic kind of namby-pamby self-centered stuck up I wasn't really interested in going there but almost like an embarrassing uncle and you begin to see some family resemblance as I started in second Corinthians I thought wow these are these are verses and truths that the, the Lord needs to apply to my life and wants to apply to my life the the book of Second Corinthians is not particularly strong doctrinally in the sense of a Romans or a Colossians, but as one commentator said, the book is strong with the theology of the marketplace, and that's where we live. And so there's great truths here that we can glean as we look into Second Corinthians chapter one here. Corinth was started as a uh, Roman colony. We're pretty familiar with Corinthians, so I'm not going to spend a long time on this, but it's helpful for the background to see how it got the way it was. It was a Roman colony, and while typically they're started by populating those new colonies with military personnel, in the case of Corinth, it was populated with freedmen, with slaves. And so they went there, and they were able to exploit anything that Corinth had to offer them. Corinth is situated on the little isthmus, the little land strip, uh, bordering on the Sea of Corinth and the Mediterranean Sea. So it was a terrific place of uh, good transfer. There was a lot of export, import, a lot of commerce. There were the isthmus games, which might have been bigger than the Olympic games, if you could say the word isthmus. But they had a lot of transit people come in there, short-term population, long-term population. You could increase your station in life. You could gain wealth. You could make something of yourself like you could never have before in the city of Corinth. And so it was exploited to that end completely to the point where it became kind of nauseated. A second century person who was there said, I don't even want to go to Corinth again. I'm nauseated by the the attitude of the rich and appalled by the misery of the poor. It was a place that was basically the culmination of, one commentator said, Los Angeles... New York City and Las Vegas, if you can imagine that, kind of a wretched place. And that was the city of Corinth as Paul's addressing them. And here we have Paul going to the Missionary Agency Society of Antioch and says, hey, I want to be a missionary, Antioch uh, Missionary Society says, terrific, we want you to plant a church in Corinth, thank you very much. And so Paul and Barnabas and others head out to Corinth, and we know that there's a lot of exchange going on. We know that when Paul talks about some of his sufferings, he's explicitly referring to the troubles of the churches. Corinth had to be near the top of the list. We know that there's been multiple exchange of letters. There's been severe letters. There's been... uh, teaching letters, the Corinthians have come back with questions, rebuttals, rebukes, Paul going back and forth, finally a very severe letter, a painful visit to Corinth, and finally Paul hears words that the Corinthians are in a repentant spirit. And so he writes the second letter at that point, and he's cautious. He has a couple things he needs to do. One, he needs to reestablish his apostolic ministry. Two, he needs to carefully let the Corinthians know that even though their lifestyle has been changed and they've begun to repent, that they need to get themselves under the cross of Christ. They need to have their values, their motives, their worldview changed. And then he also has some issues to deal with with regard to some false teachers that were there as well. So this is the, the, the self-centered, just-coming-out-of-it mentality that Paul's addressing. In fact, if the joke could apply, Paul might have said, how many Corinthians does it take to screw in a light bulb? Just one. He would stand there and the rest of the world revolves around him. There, there's there's an attitude there that Paul needs and we need to learn where we completely put our lives and hearts and motives and values under the cross of Christ. I want to clarify terms a little bit. I mentioned that this is the promise in pain. And by pain, what I mean there is all the words that the Scripture uses, such as suffering, pain, discipline, training, tribulation, all those things, all those words and all that they imply, meaning a, a pressure, a, 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 a difficult time, personal pain, a, a narrowing gap that you're being squeezed through, a training time, a, disi- a discipling time, all those things I'm aggregately calling pain for, for our use here today. I was tempted to leave out personal pain, the kind of pain that we get when we do things stupid, and realizing though that Ephesians 1.11 says that, that uh, Jesus works all things after the counsel of His own will. I think we even have to include our stupidity in this as well, the things that come our way because of our own dumb decisions. Theodore Roosevelt said that if you could kick the person in the pants responsible for most of your trouble, you wouldn't sit for a month. Well, because it's all things after the counsel of his own will, praise God, we'll be able to sit. Let's look at what the Scripture says about the promise in pain. It speaks to us of great hope and comfort, and it's on this basis that I want to give us five prescriptive truths When we have the diagnosis of pain in our life, five truths that the Scripture teaches us with regard to the promise of pain that comes into our life. First of all, pain is necessary. And you're saying, wait a minute, you mean inevitable. No, I mean necessary. The Scripture teaches that pain is necessary. We know it was the result of the fall. And I heard John Piper one time comment about the extent of the curse and said, all of nature is groaning still, and even the animal kingdom, everything was cursed. What did they do? What did the animals do? What did nature do to be the recipient of the curse? And yet, C.S. Lewis has stated that God whispers to us in our pleasure and he speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pain. It was so that we would recognize that there's something Wrong. There's something amiss. And for the non believer, it's the idea that the Lord is shouting in our pain to recognize that there's that God shaped void, as Augustine puts it, and that we finally come to Him. For believers, pain has another purpose, but it's God's purpose nonetheless. I heard someone one time say in the book of Job that I love the book of Job because it explains suffering. And then someone else says, wait a minute, the book of Job tells me that suffering is inexplicable. It's interesting that as Job's three friends go and do battle with him as they go back between righteousness and evil, etc., that on the scene comes the mysterious Elihu in chapter 33. He's the young man who deigned to say anything because he was younger, and then finally he speaks up and after discuss, discussing the various tragedies that accompany man, he says, Behold, God does all these things, oftentimes with men, to bring his soul back from the pit, that he may be enlightened with the light of life. A couple of chapters later, Elihu's still recounting all of God's revelation to the world. And he says, All these revelations, whether for correction or for his world, Or for his loving kindness, he causes it to happen. Pain is necessary for us to recognize that things have gone wrong and yet God is using it to enlighten us with the light of life. And we know that's true. Look at Job's response. A godly man, yes, but after the severe suffering he went through, when God finally spoke to him, he said, I had heard of you with my ears, but now I see you with my eyes and I repent in dust and ashes. The result was that Job now had a closer and more intimate relationship with God Almighty as a direct result of this pain. Joseph is a character I love in Scripture. There's not a disparaging remark concerning Joseph in Scripture. And yet, we get the sense that as Jacob had given him his coat of many colors and he's resplendent in all its glory and his 11 brothers have these shabby skins on and then he has a vision and he says, by the way, guys, guess what? You will be bowing down to me and mom, dad, you're in the group too. You will all be bowing down to me. And then Joseph ends up getting shipped off to Egypt. 13 years, Joseph is in prison, except for the short stint with Potiphar. He's in prison And even though God was kind to him in prison, there's no doubt that Joseph suffered. What has happened? What has gone wrong? Where's the vision? And there he learned to trust to the point where not only was he doctrinally sound in the comment he makes later and he says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Almost more importantly is when he has zero vindictive comment toward his brothers who treated him so harshly and in fact kindly to them said, don't argue on the way back. Joseph started as a righteous youth and he ended up as a yielded man. Interesting, then when when God saved Paul, he talked to Ananias and said, Ananias, go get Paul. He's a believer now. And I want you to let him know that he's going to perform miracles. He's going to heal people. He's going to be the most amazing missionary of all time. He's going to write things that people are going to be studying and pouring over for centuries to come. He said, Ananias, Paul's a believer. I'm going to show him what great things he's going to suffer on my account. It's very much his suffering that allowed Paul to say, I- I've gladly suffered the loss of all things that I might know him and then I might press forward. Paul's suffering, he said, these sufferings of my present time, they're not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed. And to all of us believers, in Philippians 1, it says that we have also been granted to suffer for His sake. Suffering is necessary, and it's born of His great love. Lamentations one thirty-three says that He afflicts us, but not with His heart. In other words, there's not this capricious, vindictive, angry God who's inflicting pain on our lives, but rather, as Hebrews 12.6 says, it's those He loves whom He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. Interesting that the church of Laodicea, the one that He was warning may even be vomited out of His mouth, He said, be zealous and Repent. And even to them, he said, because I discipline those I love. Suffering is necessary because the Lord uses it to transform us into the likeness of Christ. We're told in many cases to walk in newness of life, walk by the Spirit, be imitators of God. C.S. Lewis says there's only three alternatives in what God gives us. We can either be God... We can either become like God in creaturely response or we can become miserable. He says that's the conclusion of the matter and that God chooses to transform us in part by stripping away the things in our lives that cause us to lose sight of Him and allows us to see them as temporary, shallow, shallow, and banal and He does it by using the necessary necessary pain in our life. Romans 8.28 is a verse that we glibly use sometimes with people who are going through tough times. We say, hey, you know, all things work together for good. It's critical that when we use that verse, that we use verse 29 and 30 as well. Because it's in verse 29 and 30 that it tells us that we're being conformed by the predestined plan of God to be conformed to the image of His Son, predestined and called called then justified, justified then glorified, and that the process itself of conforming us to the likeness of Christ, the very thing that God used where we typically say he's using all things together for good, we have to remember that it's not only for good, but it's his good which is the ultimate transformation of us to bring us into the glory of heaven itself. If we leave out 29 and 30, we bankrupt 28 of its true import and its future hope. Suffering is necessary because it prepares us for marriage to Christ. You know, in Ephesians 5, the, the chapter that every newlywed man shudders when he reads it, recognizing that there's a, a, a huge responsibility in loving his wife as Christ loves the church, and I know we're all there, guys. And, um, but Paul, at the end of that, says, while this is in reference to man and woman, remember that this is primarily about the church and Christ. And what does he do? He is in the process of sanctifying us, of cleansing us. Two words that come with it. The process of taking something which is common and making it uncommon. Taking this chunk of wood and planing it, sanding it, shaping it, caring for it, spending time with it, and finally becomes a Stradivarius. It's not easy for the wood to go through that. But that's exactly the process And the cleansing by the word, the discipline, the training that happens when we're pruned and trimmed is the idea there of cleansing. So that the bride might make herself ready and be clothed in white, the righteous deeds of the saints. We have pain which is necessary so that we are prepared for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Pain must be viewed Properly for it to have its work. Some of you know that my wife has had a, a pretty serious illness for a number of years. Or we just learned about it for a number of years. She's had it for almost all her life, and I've got to say that this is something where I initially did not do well in responding properly to something that the Lord had in my life. I was resentful. There were times when I was resigned, and it wasn't until I became grateful that I feel like we began to reap the real benefits of the suffering that, that uh, Kath has gone through with the pain that she has. And I'm the recipient of some of that as, as a benefit. C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis in his excellent book, the, the Problem with Pain, says that the problem of reconciling human suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love. We tend to think of love as Kindness. You do what you want. Some people say they want to see a, a grandfatherly figure up in heaven who says, a good time was had by all. But that's not the case at all. God does not exist for the sake of man. Man does not exist for his own sake. You have created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. We were not primarily made that we may love God, though we're made for that too, but that God may love us. That we may become the objects in which the divine love may rest on us as well please to ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God cease to be God he is what it is. he he is what he is his love must in the nature of things be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character and because he already loves us he must labor to make us lovable hence pain is necessary i love david David is the king of preaching gospel truth to himself. And he's so transparent. We have in Psalm 77 where David is saying, Has your loving kindness ceased? Will your promises come to an end? Have you forgotten to be gracious? Well, David knew from Lamentations that his loving kindness would never cease. He penned himself that... He is gracious all day long. And he heard from the children of Israel that not one promise, according to Joshua, had failed of all that the Lord had promised him. So David lines up side by side these impossible truths. And as they're coming out of his mouth, you can almost envision him saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Because a couple verses later he says, I remembered and I meditated and I've come to the conclusion that what I was saying was not true. Of course he's gracious. Of course he's loving. And of course his promises have never failed. So another improper view is that we see it as retributive from God to us that somehow because of our sin that he's getting back at us for something that we've done. We've counseled people here who have struggle with this and thought well God doesn't love me he doesn't hear my prayers and maybe because of this or that the inevitable outcome of that is a hard left turn that goes the path of misery. We know that Satan is always ready to isolate any one of us and get us to the point where we say has God really said and question the truth of scripture. We can just ask Eve how that went. So those are some of the improper ways that we can view the suffering in our life, but there's a proper way as well. And that's that so we recognize that this is from God's loving hand. Romans 5.3 encourages to exult in our tribulations. And I know this is counter to our culture, but brothers and sisters, this is the reality of us taking the pains and the difficulties in our life and allowing the Holy Spirit to actually have the work that He intends to have and to bring about the transformation into the likeness of Christ. We exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, I believe while he was in prison. He spent about 10, 12 years in prison. And when he noted in 1 Thessalonians 3, 3, that Paul encouraged the church not to be disturbed by his afflictions, Because to these he had been destined, Paul said. Bunyan said, Because of that, I concluded that the sufferings of the saints are ordered and disposed by the will of God. Bunyan then begs his people, who he still shepherded while he was in prison, to humble themselves under the hand of God so that you will not be offended, either of God or men, if the cross is laid heavy upon thee, not with God, for he does nothing without cause, not with man, for they are the servants of God, to thee for good, Take therefore what comes to thee from God by them thankfully. Bunyan said, I've heard it said that in some countries there are trees but they don't bear fruit because there's no winter. Pain is the winter in our life that the Holy Spirit uses to bear fruit in our lives. Thankfully, endurance always has a sense of looking hopefully to the future James 1.12 says, Let endurance have its perfect work. Referring to the testing that they were going through. But it ended with the promise that the person is blessed who perseveres under trial because he will receive the crown of life, which has been promised to those who love him. Patiently enduring is an evidence of our love for the Lord. And there's plenty of verses that talk about the future hope of fixing our eyes on Christ and then enduring and strengthening the weak knees It's because these sufferings are from God's loving hand that we patiently endure and we look for a better kingdom. Like virtually every person in the hall of faith mentions that they left their country, that they sojourned, that they recognized that they were not part of this world. And yet every one of them, even though they had not received the promise, said it's because we recognize that there's a better country for which we're willing to wait for Peter tells us not to be surprised at the fire ordeal because we are to share in the sufferings of Christ because at the revelation of His glory, we will rejoice even more with exaltation. Pain is necessary. The way we allow pain to work in our lives is critical. Comfort is God's remedy for pain. Along with the pain, He provides us with the blessedness of comfort. Comfort. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, he says, he, We're comforted in all our affliction so that we may be able to also comfort you who are in affliction with the comfort with which we are comforted ourselves by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. The word comfort is used 19 times in 2 Corinthians, more than any other place in the New Testament. Ten of those times are in the first eight verses of 2 Corinthians 1. It carries the idea that we think of with regard to comfort, that nice feeling when you're by a fire and things are great and it's quiet and you're relaxing. That's a joy and a comfort. And it does carry that meaning. But also, just as much, it has the idea of not just the, the kindly nurse patting our hand when we're not feeling good, but it has the idea of a track coach who's running alongside you, yelling out your interval, saying, Let's go, let's go, let's go! Bettering us, striving to help us to be advancing in allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our life. Watson comments that the word comfort has gone soft in modern English. In the time of Wycliffe, the word was closely associated with its Latin root, which basically means to be brave, to be strong, to be courageous. And while we have the tender mercies of Christ, we know we have a high priest who sympathizes fully with our weaknesses. It also encourages us, hold fast your confession. Fix your eyes on Jesus in order to strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and to make straight paths for your feet. The comfort is not a tranquilizing dose of grace that dulls our pain, but it's a stiffening agent that fortifies our heart, mind, and soul. It allows us to face the troubles of life with unbending resolve and unending assurance. We will receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Therefore, we offer gratitude and service. Comfort also has a unifying effect on the body. We share in one another's pain. There's no record of the Corinthians going through any particular discomfort or pain. And yet, Paul had reminded them already in 1 Corinthians that when one member of the body suffers, they all suffer. And they did go through issues with illicit sex and discipline in the church. And even this, as we said earlier, is part of the pain that we're discussing. But to get to the fullness and maturity of Christ, each member provides according to the proper working of every part. For some of us, that role at various times in our lives is to suffer well. We learn how to respond properly from seeing others go through difficult times. I remember a few years ago when their fires were in San Diego... And the Holbergs had recounted a friend of theirs whose whose house burned to the ground. He said the first thing they did was hold a worship service in the front yard. If my house burns down, that's what I want to do. Pain and comfort unite to fix our hope on God. He gives us graciously comfort with the necessary pain and they unite to fix our hope on God. As it says here in verses 9 and 10, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Since the fall, the problem is not only that man didn't do good, he didn't want to do good. Thankfully, as believers, we have the Holy Spirit working in us, both the will and to do his good pleasure, but we can't Train ourselves out of sin. Colossians tells us, why why are you listening to these rules of don't touch, don't taste, don't do this, don't do that? They have the appearance of religion. He said, but they're useless with regard to satisfying... They have no value against fleshly indulgences. John Henry Newman states that we're not merely imperfect creatures who need to be improved. We are rebels who need to lay down our arms. Isn't it always an issue of the will? When we suffer affliction, when we suffer affliction our minds are real from the inability to do anything because we can't gain our own relief. This helplessness is what the Lord desires in our spiritual thinking as well as we submit and trust in Him wholly. Paul said... We have the sentence of death in ourselves. The idea there is Paul literally appeared to see no way out. The idea is that the only thing we could do is die. We we have no way out. And yet God delivered him. In verse 10, he delivered us from so great a peril. He will deliver us on whom we have set our hope. And he will yet deliver us. Whatever happened there, and we don't know what happened in these difficulties in Asia, but whatever it was, Paul saw no way out. And because of that, in our difficulty and suffering, when we see no way out, we have the confidence that the necessary pain, through that, God will deliver us. John Bunyan referring to this passage says, By this scripture I was made to see that if I would ever suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can be properly called a thing of this life, even to reckon myself, my wife, my family, my children, my health, my employment is all as dead to me and myself is dead to them. The second was to live upon God that is invisible because as Paul said in another place, the way not to faint is to look not at the things that are seen but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal. Think of Abraham being told by God to offer his son. And for three days, Abraham and Isaac are walking to the mountain with wood and fire and rope and no sacrifice. What was going through Abraham's mind? Tozer makes the comment that Isaac must have so much taken the place in, in Abraham's heart that he was in danger of idol worship this son of his after so long had now become the center and focal point of Abraham's life. And that God needed the means to tear it out by the roots. Abraham goes to the mountain on his way, comes to the conclusion that death was the only way out. But then in Hebrews 11 we're told that he had the sentence of death, but he trusted in God Who could raise people from the dead? He thought God was going to raise Isaac. And so he had hope. We as believers, we're told that in these last times that Christ has appeared for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead so that your faith and hope are in God. Martha and Mary told Jesus if you had been here Lazarus wouldn't have died if you had only come earlier the time when Jesus wept with them do you believe in the resurrection yes I believe that we'll be resurrected at the last day Martha and Mary had the sentence of death and yet fixed their hope on God who would raise him from the dead There was a young couple who were having very serious marital problems. He would lash out just in a, in a rage. He uh, had never hit her, but just oozed anger and frustration. And she could push his buttons, and he allowed every one of them to be pushed to the point where he would just come unglued. She'd finally had enough and left him the, uh, the young man after uh, a period of time broke down allowed the Holy Spirit to work in his life and just completely repented gave his life wholly over to Christ and was a, a new man but it was too late the, the wife was already gone she would already left he asked if he could get together with her one time, and she finally agreed. And he said, "I just have one question. Do you believe? Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead?" She said, "Yes." if God raised Jesus from the dead, do you think he can heal our marriage? She said, I'll try. Years and seven children later, they learned what it meant to have the sentence of death in themselves, but to trust in God who raised Jesus from the dead. So while we have the promise in pain, We have this huge comfort, and behind all of it, we have the resurrection power of Christ. Starting with the promise of the Messiah, through Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, so many, and so many today who are suffering. And I know that here today, there's many here who have gone through terrible suffering and terrible pain. And many of us who will go through serious pain. many who are going through difficult, difficult pain today. This message is primarily for you. That this pain is promised. To accept it for what it is. To allow God to do the work in your heart and life that will draw you closer to Him to where like Job you say "I, I, I repent and I desire to know you. Hopefully the Laodicean church who repented and invited him in to sup with him, to be intimate with him. That's his desire as he prepares us. Let's pray. Father, we look at your word and are amazed at how in every facet it's applicable to every area of our life. Lord, we're thankful that by your Holy Spirit that you Take the word and with faith mix it so it produces faith in our life and encourages us and transform us in a way that we could never do on ourselves, Lord. We want to wholly yield to you in whatever area that we're holding on to, in whatever area that we might be resenting or frustrated with. In any area, Lord, that we are not wholly under the cross of Christ, allowing you to have your way with us for all things have been orchestrated and ordained by you to either bring us to Christ in the first place or to transform us into the likeness of Christ. For that, we're very grateful and thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.